This is glorious good news. This is, this is gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus has appeared to put away sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. As we sang just a minute ago, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus appeared to put away sin. This is the central point of this statement that we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. Everything else in the statement just informs and augments that one single point. Jesus appeared to put away sin. To put away simply means to take away or to carry away. And if we're honest, don't we all know that we need our sins put away? Taken and carried away from us? I was preaching yesterday at a men's breakfast in uh, St. Philip. And I, one of the points that I made to the men who were present there was, nobody lives up even to their own standards, let alone God's. Literally nobody. If you, if you ask anyone, even the most avowed atheist, have you ever done something that you yourself disapprove of? The answer is always yes. If they're honest. I'm not saying people won't lie to you. But everybody, everybody has done something that they themselves disapprove of. And that's just our own standards, let alone God's. If we were to ask people, have you ever broken, violated God's standards? And if someone said, well, what are those? Or if it, the atheist mockingly and scoffingly said, well, what supposedly are those? If there was a God, what would he want us to do? If we were to point them to God's law and say, look, this is what God says we ought to be doing. Have you ever broken those things? Again, if we're honest, each and every one of us has to answer yes. And you know, you know that it's true not only of yourself, but you know that it's true of the people around you. Because you've been hurt by people. You, you know people sin. You've seen the devastation that sin causes. You've seen the devastation that sin brings upon families. Even upon whole societies. You know that we need our sin put away. You know that you need your sin put away. What a world this would be. No, 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 let me say that differently. What a world this will be when there is no more sin. I was going to say what a world this would be. Use your imagination and think, what, what kind of world would this be if everybody loved God with their heart, soul, strength, and mind? If everybody loved their neighbor as themselves? How much better would marriages be? How much happier would families be? How much less stressful would it be to go to work? I was going to say, imagine how the world would be, but as I was saying, as I was coming out of my mouth, this is our glorious hope. It will be like that one day because of Jesus. Jesus appeared to put away sin. One day, our hope is that it will be taken right out of the world carried away right out of the world. 
in the meantime, the process has begun. And that's more our focus this morning. But we know that we need to put it away. John Gill, a historic theologian, puts it like this. We need both the filth and the guilt of our sins put away. That's a good summary of our need. We need the filth and the guilt of our sins put away. We do need the filth of our sins put away. Sin makes you dirty. You know that feeling? You feel, you feel like gross or something like that. Defiled, right? You know, and we often associate words like dirty with like sexual sin, right? But that's only just one. But you can, you can be dirty from anger. Right? You can be dirty from greed, defiled, polluted. You've done something that is wrong in God's sight and you feel filthy. You feel dirty, you feel defiled. You need that taken away. It's upon you. What, it, what do you do with those darkest memories of the worst I'm not talking about things that were done to you at this point. I'm talking about things that you've done. When you think back on some of the worst stuff you've done and you just had that sinking feeling like, well, I can never take that back. The bullet's out of the gun, so to speak. You can't, you can't undo what has been done. Maybe you can seek forgiveness. Maybe you can experience reconciliation. Maybe you can change your ways. Maybe you can live a new life. Maybe you can learn from it. But you can never undo the fact that you did that. And you're always going to be a person who did that. You're dirty because of that. Filthy because of that. Defiled because of that. It's on you. It's part of who you are. We need that taken away. We need to be cleansed. And we need the guilt of our sins put away. This is slightly different than the filth of our sins, in that it has to do with our legal record. Because you're not only dirty and defiled and filthy because of whatever you have done, but you're also guilty for what you have done. You're liable to judgment. So if somebody did something criminal and evil, criminal and immoral, and he appeared before the judge, and he said, well, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And you see, I've been cleansed. I've been purified. If the judge is any good, he's going to say, well, that's good. I'm happy to hear that, but you're still going to jail. Because they're, they're two different things. You can be cleansed, but you're still guilty. Guilty is a legal thing. Guilty is a legal record. And both of those things need to be dealt with. There's a legal record, and then there's an actual qualitative defilement. And both of those aspects need to be addressed. This is what we need. We need both the filth and the guilt of our sins put away. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to put away, and let's look at the different clauses in this sentence. Jesus came to 
put away our sin once for all. Look at what it says here. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus put the filth and guilt of our sins away from us once for all when he suffered on the cross at Calvary. Once for all. He carried our sins away from us. He suffered the wrath that we deserve. The first deals with the filth. The second deals with the guilt. This is very much like the Old Testament sacrifices. In Leviticus 8, or pardon me, Leviticus 16, 8 to 10, there are two goats. This is the ritual for the Day of Atonement, which was a yearly, annual thing. Two goats. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. This is not obviously an exposition of everything in that passage including who or what is Azazel. But the point that we see very clearly here is that there are two goats. And one of the goats stands before the priest and he puts his hands on his head, which symbolizes a transfer of guilt to that goat, a transfer of sin to that goat. And then that goat is sent away from the people, away from the camp. It carries the sin away, symbolically. The other one, has the guilt of the people placed upon it and it's slaughtered. It dies in the place of the people, bearing the punishment that they deserve. And this gives us a twofold picture of what Christ did at the cross. Jesus' work on the cross is very much like the work of those two goats on the Day of Atonement, in which Jesus has our sins placed upon him. And then he goes outside the camp, Hebrews stresses to say, outside the gates of Jerusalem to be crucified. Our sin goes away from us, out to this place, upon the shoulders of this lamb. Jesus takes the dirtiness, the filth, the defilement off of us, away from us, and bears it to the cross. If you are trusting in Christ Jesus, you ought, by nature, by right, to feel dirty, to feel defiled, to feel filthy. But listen to this. If you are trusting in Christ Jesus, you are clean. Every one of your sins. You say, well, what about the ones I'm going to do on Tuesday? 
chronologically, that doesn't make sense because the ones I've already did could be on Jesus, but what about the future ones? Listen to this. Every sin you've ever committed was future to AD 33. Every sin that you ever committed was carried away from you by Jesus before you were born. So you are clean. When Jesus did his work, roughly A.D. 33, those many years ago, he did that work for you, believer. And so though the defilement, though the dirt, though the filth really ought to stick to you, because you did it. Jesus didn't do it. You did it. You ought to be dirty and filthy still. Jesus could have just left you like that. God could have looked down and said, look at those filthy people. Serves them right. They made their bed, now they got a lion. You reap what you sow. Look at them, filthy and guilty. Leave them to be. But that is not what happened. God, in everlasting love, said, look at those dirty people. They need to be made clean. Look at those people in filthy garments. They need clean garments. They need new garments. They need their robes washed. These are analogies that the scripture gives us of the work of redemption. God sent his son Jesus to bear your dirt, your filth away from you. If you're trusting in Christ Jesus, though by rights, you really ought still to be filthy. You're not. You're clean. Because Jesus bore it away. And really, you ought to bear the guilt, bear in yourself at the end of your life the punishment that you deserve for your sin. After all, again, you did it. Who are, you, who are you going to blame for ending up in hell? If anyone here is not trusting in Christ, and if you don't, you will end up in hell. And when you get there, who are you going to blame? Whose fault is it? God's? Why didn't God save me? What does the scripture say? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. First of all, God is not to blame for your sin, for the guilt that is yours, and therefore for the punishment to which you are liable. He didn't even have to do anything about it in the first place, so you can't sit there in hell and blame God. Why didn't he save me as if you're entitled to being saved? Second of all, God has actually offered the gospel to everyone. Without exception. There is no one who may not come. Jesus is so clear. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Sin is not... God's problem, it's our problem. But God has done something about it. Christian, though really and truly, 
you ought to just bear your own guilt and punishment just like anyone else. If you are trusting in Christ Jesus, your guilt is gone. Your punishment has been born. Again, you say, well, yeah, my past, for my past sins, but what about if I sin on Tuesday? It's the same thing. What Jesus did so long ago, he did with respect to the filth as well as with respect to the guilt. If Jesus can take away in AD 33 the guilt of sins committed in 2010, don't you think he can take away in AD 33 the guilt of sins committed in 2025? Look, if you're in Christ Jesus, he bore away your filth and he bore away the punishment that you deserve for your sin because of your guilt. He bore it away. So Jesus' work was very much like the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Specifically, we see a, a real clear correspondence with those two goats on the Day of Atonement. But Jesus' work on the cross was very much unlike Old Testament sacrifices in one important way. <clears throat> it was once for all. It was once for all because it was effective. You see, the Day of Atonement was to happen year after year after year after year after year. And people could wonder, well, are our sins really gone then? Are they really atoned for? Are they really done away with? But Jesus suffered once for all. He atoned for us once and for all. So his sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated year after year. Unlike the animal sacrifices. The question would arise then in the thinking person's mind. What's with all the animal sacrifices then? It seems that they were just pointless. If they didn't actually accomplish anything. Why, why bother to do all that? Well, let me illustrate with a hypothetical situation. Suppose somebody comes to me and says, we've gotten engaged, we want to get married, a year from now, next June, and uh, we'd like for you to do the wedding. Yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, we know we have our pre-marriage counseling, all this stuff. And then the time comes and then they say, well, when is the wedding rehearsal? And I say, oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna waste my time with the wedding rehearsal. They say, well, why not? I say, well, it doesn't accomplish anything anyway. You're not actually married after the wedding rehearsal. They say, well, yeah, but don't you think it's still important? And I say, well, in what sense is it important? You're not married after the wedding rehearsal. It's just going through the motions. Do you see how unreasonable that would be? Because something can be important without it actually being effective for, in terms of, uh, in and of itself, what it's accomplishing. Right? The wedding, the actual ceremony, is what's effective at marrying people. But the wedding rehearsal is effective only for preparing for the actual wedding. It's ineffective in actually marrying people. But it helps prepare us for what's going to happen on that day, the actual, eventual, real thing. And so, 
The Old Testament animal sacrifices were something like that. They were not actually effective. As Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But we can preach a sermon like this now with a vivid picture in our minds of what Jesus did on the cross because one goat was sent out into the wilderness and one goat was slaughtered. And we're like, oh, I get it. That's a good illustration. It's a good analogy of what happened on the cross. What about the people back then? who hadn't yet had a Messiah sent to them. What is he going to do? Who is he going to be? Well, he's going to be a prophet like Melchizedek, according to Genesis. He's going to be, or pardon me, a priest like Melchizedek. He's going to be a prophet like Moses, according to Deuteronomy. He's going to be a king like David, according to Chronicles. He's going to be an animal, he's going to be a sacrifice uh, like these animal sacrifices, according to Leviticus and Isaiah 53. He's going to be the meeting place between God and man, according to Zechariah. You see, the Old Testament tells us what the Messiah is. The New Testament tells us who he is. But you see, even though these things were not effective in themselves, there never was a king who ruled righteously in an eternal kingdom and gathered out of his kingdom all evildoers and lawbreakers. No king's been able to do that thus far. So they weren't effective, right, in that sense. But they were foreshadowing and anticipating, right? There was no prophet who was himself the fullest revelation of God until Jesus came on the scene. But those prophets anticipated the fullest revelation. And there was no priest who actually offered efficacious sin-atoning sacrifices until Jesus came and acted as a priest upon the cross, offering up himself. But they foreshadowed and they pictured. So these things prepared those people in those times for the coming Messiah. And those things serve us as object lessons and analogies and illustrations of what Jesus did. And so... Though they were not effective in and of themselves, they were preparatory and therefore still important. But what we see is that Jesus came once for all, which is why we don't offer up goats once a year anymore. Because the filth of our sin is gone and the guilt of our sin is gone. Jesus came to put away sin at the end of the ages, Hebrews 9.26 says. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Question, what will the apex of human history be? Some think it is when Elon Musk figures out how to colonize the moon. Some think it will be perhaps some cataclysmic event and not a happy ending, a nuclear war or something like this. Some people think that the apex of human history is coming, whether it be this or whether it be that, or some grand event or something that we're really, this is going to be like the defining thing of the human race. But let me tell you this, the apex of human history has already happened. In a story, there is a plot line. And if there is no plot line, it's not a very good story. And 
every plot line has some similarities. There are characters. There is some kind of crisis or tension introduced. That crisis or tension is resolved in some way. And then there is some kind of ending. Without those things, you don't actually have a complete story. You have part of a story. So all of those things are in every complete story. The story of history has already seen the crisis or tension resolved. Do you realize that? You might say, well, well, you're out of touch with reality because the coronavirus, you know, economic hard times, threats of war. I mean, I just mentioned nuclear war and, you know, there's various things that we have to stress about, fret about, and worry about. I just stressed the point at the beginning of the sermon that we're all sinners and we see how sin is just wreaking havoc in the world. So how can you say that the, the crisis or the tension has been resolved? Well, in a story, there can be a decisive moment in which, let's say, the good characters get the upper hand. And the rest of the story is just working out the details of bringing everything to a nicely, tightly wrapped up solution. But you wouldn't, say, you wouldn't say that the victory wasn't had until the very, very end. You would say the victory was had earlier, like somewhere in the middle of the story, when that decisive moment happened. And then the rest you would categorize as the ending, which is just wrapping things up, mopping things up. Right? So we could draw an analogy from World War II and talk about D-Day versus V-E-Day. D-Day being the storming of the beach at Normandy. And then Victory in Europe Day coming many, many months later. But once the Allies had won at Normandy, the momentum was all going the Allies' way. And the writing was on the wall for the Nazis. And so you could say that we're between D-Day and VE Day right now in human history. We're at a point in the story where the apex has already happened. You're not at the point in the story where you're wondering how on earth will the good guys get out of this one? There was a show, I don't know, I don't know if it was on in Barbados or not. But there was a show on is in the I think it was originally produced in the 80s, but it was reruns were on into the 90s and the 2000s. Called MacGyver. Yeah? Yes or no? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. So my brother uh, used to used to go to school close enough to the house to walk. And when he was a little guy, like maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, he used to walk home from school at lunch. And MacGyver was on. I can't remember whether it's a half hour episode or an hour episode. The details don't really matter. Probably a half hour episode. And so let's say that it started at 12.30 and ended at 1. The problem was that school resumed at 1. And so my brother would stay 
and watch MacGyver every, every day at lunch. And then you would be five minutes late for the afternoon session of school every single day. And so the time came for report cards to come out. And his report card was very good, but the, the teacher asked to have a meeting with my parents because my brother had good marks and his attendance was exemplary, except for one issue. He was five minutes late every single day. And so my parents went in for a meeting with the teacher and the teacher said, you know, I just don't know what's going on because he's a good kid, he works hard in school, you know, all this stuff. And my dad said, oh, I know, I know what happens. He watches MacGyver every day at lunch. <laughs> the teacher's jaw just dropped. Okay, so you know about this? And he said, yeah. So what, he said, well, like, what do you want me to do? Send him back to school while MacGyver's tied up to a stick of dynamite? <laughs> he has to see how the issue resolves. <laughs> so the, um, the teacher just couldn't believe him, but my brother just kept watching MacGyver and life went on. Um, by the way, my brother turned out all right. <laughs> the, um, where we are right now, where we are right now in human history is not wondering how MacGyver will get untied from the stick of dynamite. This is what I mean. We're not at a point in human history where the crisis or tension has not been resolved. There's a moment when you're watching MacGyver like he's going to get blown up for sure. Well, I guess he won't because it's going to be on again tomorrow. So how will he get up? We're not at that point in human history. You see, MacGyver's already escaped. Right? So maybe now he needs to beat up a few baddies and, you know, jump on a helicopter and get out of there. But the, the crisis point, the tension point, has been resolved. We divide human history into B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The change from B.C.E. to C.E., which secularists are pushing for, before Common Era and Common Era, really doesn't escape the fact, though, does it? Because it's actually the same dating system. So you see, we recognize just how significant the coming of Christ was, even in our dating system. Everything from this point onward is after the apex of human history. This is, this is the end of the ages. It's upon us already. The end of the story here. It's the last couple minutes of MacGyver before you're going to walk back to school. This is, this is the end of the ages. It tells us here that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is how the story resolves. You see, the characters is us and God. The crisis is that we have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The apex of human history is what the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. The very, very, very last chapter in the story is, Then I saw the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. Right? So we're not in the very last chapter, but we're at the end of the book. And we've already seen the apex where the crisis point, the tension is resolved, and now we're just reading the last couple of chapters. But Jesus 
has come to put away sins at the end of the ages. And now we see Jesus came to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. Again, in contrast to animal sacrifices, Jesus entered heaven with his own blood to effect a real transaction. Again, this is not the wedding rehearsal, but the wedding day. Jesus entered into, not into holy places made with hands, a couple of verses earlier says, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So not into a tabernacle, which was just an object lesson of spiritual realities. Not into the temple, which was just an object lesson of spiritual realities. These holy places made with hands, which are called here copies. Jesus entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus doesn't go into any earthly tabernacle, any earthly temple. He goes straight into the actual presence of God. And he doesn't go with the blood of bulls and goats. He goes with his own blood. And he pleads. The blood of all those sacrifices I know can never atone for sin. It's human sin and those animal sacrifices could never atone. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Hebrews 10 and verse 5. But a body you have prepared for me. And that body was broken for them. And the blood was shed for them. So now I plead that broken body and that shed blood for them. Receive it as an effectual an efficacious atonement for these people. And God accepted it. The Holy God is reconciled to us now. The filth of our sin was carried away outside the camp. The guilt of our sin was placed upon Him. He bore the punishment that we deserve. He took our dirtiness away from us it to himself. Christian, you're clean. Christian, you're forgiven. Jesus came to put away sin. He did it once for all at the end of the ages by the sacrifice of himself. Each and every one of you in here, including the little children, hey kids, listen up. You need your sins put away. Kids, listen up. You need your sins put away. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus, look to Him even now for the salvation that you need from sin. Trust in Jesus. Jesus will make you clean. Jesus will make you forgiven. Trust in Jesus. For the rest of us, those who have all those of us who have 
had our sins put away. Let us honor him. Let us crown him with many crowns. Let us sing, sing, believer, of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king throughout eternity.